If you have a Bible with you, please open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we resume our study through that book this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'd ask for you to please borrow one from us in the pocket of the pew in front of you. You can find our passage of 1 Corinthians 7. We'll be reading the entirety of the chapter here in just a moment. Uh, You can find that on page 898 of that pew Bible. We in America are told constantly of the vast importance of marriage. And scholars, sociologists have continued to acknowledge the importance for our society as a whole, and especially for individuals within that society. There is a continuing study of marriage done in almost every study that comes back. It shows that it is good for children. It is good for adults. It is good across the board. It is good for society as a whole. We talk a lot about the importance of marriage. A lot of that talk politically has happened because of the issue of gay marriage that has come up. And we have, as Christians rightly noted, what marriage is. We've noted our, our desire to not see it portrayed as acceptable for gay people to take that upon them because that is not what the word of the Lord says. That is not what marriage actually is. Part of that warning comes down that tampering with the institution of marriage is at best problematic, at worst catastrophic. And it ought to surprise no one that Christians were at the forefront of that. Marriage has been an incredibly important institution within the church, not just from the time of Augustine, but even before him. We take marriage seriously. We think that marriage is good and right, and think that it's not only good for individuals, but for all of society to have strong families and strong marriages. But we also know that Christians sometimes say a lot of things that are not found in Scripture. So it always helps to go to Scripture and hear afresh what Scripture says. So today we turn to 1 Corinthians and hear what Paul has to say to that particular church about marriage. This passage, all 40 verses of it, is an important passage for no other reason than it is the longest and most explicit teaching on marriage in all of Scripture. While the most important passage about marriage is likely Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 7 is most detailed on the nature and the purpose of marriage, and it is chocked full of interesting things. Before we get to that, though, a little bit of background before we read. First, while this is by far the longest discussion of marriage in Scripture, we still should understand that Paul is writing to a particular issue within the Corinthian church— The question that the Corinthians have posed to Paul, or their actions have posed to Paul, is not, so what are we to think about marriage as a general institution? But rather, it is is a particular issue that has arisen in the church about how men and women ought to handle themselves within marriage. Therefore, Paul's not giving sort of a systematic treatment of marriage here. Not everything that is to be said about marriage is said within this passage. The issues that arise here are the opposite in many respects of what we have already read in previous chapters, in chapter 5 and in chapter 6. There, there was a sort of liberal spirit of licentiousness because the body didn't matter. It didn't matter what you did with it, whether that was being with your stepmother or whether that was visiting prostitutes. There was this attitude within Corinth that said that you can pretty much do whatever you want to. The issue that Paul addresses first and foremost in 1 Corinthians 7 is Should we abstain from sex altogether? And not just fornication, but even within the marriage. On top of all this, 
because of that issue, Paul hits on numerous permutations and combinations of married life. He talks about believers being married to other believers. He talks about those people who are engaged to be married, those people who are engaged to non-believers, how divorce impacts believers, how they should handle those things, how to live even as a single person. All of these things kind of get mixed up in this chapter. And instead of covering all these piecemeal, I want to do my best to sort of sweep them up into generalities into two distinct piles, issues that Paul raises for those who are married and issues that Paul raises for those who are single. Let's turn to the word of the Lord and hear from our God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You are bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let, there let him remain with God. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that, in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. 
Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of our Lord. Let us turn first and foremost to the very first thing that Paul turns his attentions to, and that is issues for those who are married. Paul gives a very basic reason for marriage. It is very straightforward and it is undiluted in this passage, and it is simply sex. It is not children. It is not the issue of procreation. It is not love. It is simply as a protection from sexual immorality. This is the number one reason that Paul has here for marriage, and it is that by a country mile. The implication is incredibly strong and shouldn't be missed. Once in marriage... The goals and the purposes have other aspects to them. We can turn to Ephesians 5 to see those. But the question of whether you are going to marry or not turns solely on whether or not you can control sexual impulses. That is it. According to what Paul says here, that is what should, should be most important to you. If you had a flowchart, and at the top of that flowchart was the question, should I marry? The very first question is, can you control your impulses? If the answer to that is no, then the answer is go get married. If the answer is yes, then it is you shouldn't. It's that simple. The quote in verse 1 seems to come from a faction of people within the church who are convinced that holiness is best obtained by abstaining from the things of the world and especially those things given over to marriage. It is good for a man not to have sexual, sexual relations with a woman. Now, Paul would have no issue with that, if that meant outside of marriage. But clearly, people meant that inside marriage too. So they were teaching people, once you're married, even if you're married, once you come to know Christ, you shouldn't have sex anymore. And Paul says, that's a bad idea. That's a bad idea. Paul argues for the opposite, but he does so in a negative way. 
He doesn't say much about marriage making you holy, and he says even less about sex doing anything of the such, but he is clear. Not only is sex within marriage permissible, but because it is permissible, it can keep people from unholy and sinful behavior outside of it. That is, it is a protection from what we have already seen happening in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 6, we talked about the fact that these men were, for some reason, going to prostitutes. It could very well be that they were going to prostitutes because that was the place where they would have this sort of relief for them. And it was wrong. Paul said, it's wrong. You cannot do that. And he turns and he says, the protection for those hearts of sins is to be in marriage. Now, there are many people who like the assertion that because it puts pressure on a marriage and it puts pressure on spouses, that allowing for sex within marriage as a protection for other forms of wrong sexual behavior, we shouldn't just admit that. We shouldn't say that. Because it does, for many people, become the sort of convenient excuse for sexual sins. Why did you turn to adultery? Why did you turn to prostitution? Why did you turn to pornography? Well, you see, my wife and I are having troubles, or, or we're just not as intimate as we normally are. Listen, if you engage in sexual sin that is your fault, it is not the fault of your spouse. Your, your spouse carries no, no, no guilt for your sin. They did not push you into it. They did not lead you into it. It is your fault. Blaming your spouse for your own failings is straightforward Genesis 3 behavior. It's evil and it's not excusable. That being said, it is clear that Paul does actually consider that sex within marriage is a protection from those kinds of sexual sins. We'd be foolish and, quite frankly, disrespecting to Scripture to say that sex within marriage is a non-factor in the suppression of sin. A healthy married life, in that respect, goes a long way to keeping sexual sins at bay. So first, marriage is a protection. Secondly, sex within marriage is to be wholly mutual. The beginning of verse 4 would have been something that the Corinthians, if, if it wasn't a statement that they had heard before, it was at least a sentiment that they had heard before. This was the sentiment that was ripe in almost every culture in the ancient world up until modernity, up until basically Christianity, which was this. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. This was the view of marriage. It was the view of marriage in Roman society. It was the view of marriage in almost every society. That the woman's body did not belong to her, but it was wholly possessed by the man. You'll notice that Paul wants to correct that, but he does something that is incredibly, strangely liberating to both men and women. He doesn't deny that. As a matter of fact, he accepts it whole cloth. He says, point blank, the woman's body, the wife's body, belongs to the husband. But then he turns around and says, but the husband's body likewise belongs to the wife. If he said, listen, you've got your body, she's got her body, you're an authority over yours, she's an authority over hers, all that does is lead to selfish and individualistic ways of looking at sex, and Paul in Scripture simply won't have it. Instead, he claims that that particular cultural import holds, but it is balanced by the reverse, something that no one would have claimed in the Roman Empire, that a woman, a wife, has absolute control over her husband's body. Now, listen, 
It doesn't take long before you start to think about how that works together, before you realize that the logical implications of that are all contradictory. It's all over the place. But it leads to relational harmony. And quite clearly what Paul is getting at is that your concern is to be for your spouse's. It's for their well-being, their good, their pleasure and enjoyment. He says, the wife doesn't have authority, and he goes on to say that you should give to them their conjugal rights. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. She has rights in that area. Husbands have rights in that area. Your concern then, what Paul is saying, is no longer over your own pleasure and over your own body, but over your spouse's. Therefore, it is to be wholly mutual. Paul argues for complete mutuality in marriage when it comes to sex. The authority in both cases is shared by the partners, and the joy is therefore also to be shared by both partners. Third, it should be often enough for both enjoyment and protection. Paul says that separation for some time is fine, given that it's for prayer. He has this really clear, it's not for anything else. It's for prayer. You devote yourself to prayer, you can, you can kind of take a break from it. But note the importance that for Paul, sex and marriage occupies. Paul says, and Paul is the one who says, most often, you are to be continually in prayer. He says, listen, it's fine to take a break from this, to go to prayer, but there comes a time when you need to stop praying and start that again. But it comes with another note. Don't do the, the abstinence thing for too long. Come back together so you, you're not opening up yourself to temptation by Satan. Now, Paul does not give any indication what that long time is. He gives no indication as to how it's supposed to happen. And we, we know rightly that people are different. Couples are different. Some couples have, have different desires and different bodily urges than other couples do. Sometimes there's longer periods, sometimes there's shorter periods. And age plays a factor in all that as well. There's all kinds of reasons why Paul doesn't say, this is the amount that is appropriate and holy, and this is the amount that's not. Again, that mutuality thing has to come forward. Some seasons of life need that control more than others. Paul is not saying that you don't need self-control. You clearly do need self-control. What he is saying is that forced abstinence in marriage is not the way for Christians to pursue holiness, and it opens them up for unneeded temptation. Fourth, marriage with an unbelieving spouse is okay. You might ask why that seems to even be an issue. It is an issue because of the logic of what Paul said all the way back in 1 Corinthians 6, and this clears up a problem that we get in this particular passage. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul makes the rhetorically effective move of claiming that because the body matters to the Lord, of linking the body of a member of Jesus to the body of a prostitute, links Christ to that prostitute. Now, the transitive property of sin, if Christ is unified to you and you're unified to a prostitute, then Christ is unified with that prostitute, leads to that sort of last bit of repugnant conclusion, which I feel like, given what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, was also something that the Corinthians would have said, mm, that's not good. Now, that logic can easily be taken and applied to an unbelieving spouse as well. So if you are a member of Christ and your husband or your wife do not believe, then are you not connecting Christ to an unbeliever as well? 
to someone who is unholy before the Lord, to someone who is unrepentant before the Lord, to someone who, who might be morally degenerate in a number of ways and certainly is idolatrous. You have to remember, this is, these are almost all first-generation Christians. When they come to the Lord, if they're married, it is unlikely that their spouse got saved at the same time. And even if that happened, that certainly didn't happen to everyone. They, they didn't have a youth group to grow up in, to meet other Christians. Christian mingle wouldn't be invented for another 35 years or so. So because of that, there's, there's no way for them to find spouses in the Lord. They likely would have come in being married to unbelievers. As much as this is an issue within the church today, it certainly was an issue back then. And so the question is, if they're unholy, then should we even engage in this? And Paul's very clear. This is why he mentions divorce. He says very clearly, the Lord gives a, a very clear charge. Christians are never to initiate divorce. Now, there are other reasons why Christians can do this. Let's be clear. Paul doesn't mean that Christians are never to initiate divorce. There are obvious reasons why Christians would do that. But he's saying simply being married to an unbeliever is not one of those reasons. You are not to do it in this case. There is a separate issue, though, as to whether that spouse wants to leave you. And so he says very clearly that if that spouse wants to leave you, that's fine. However, if they don't, stay with them and stay married. This is then why he says they are holy. For the unbelieving husband, in verse 14, is made holy because of his wife. You are not to read that and to think that that holy means they're made right with God and they have a right moral standing before him, that they are somehow by proxy brought into the covenant and brought into the faith. That is not what he means. He means simply that they are clean and clear in order to engage in normal marital relationships with. If you think of it like the temple, as Paul has already linked the body of Christians to the temple, the temple had many courts in it. The further out you got, the further you were from the Holy of Holies. The Gentiles were on the outside. Believing women were then closer. Believing men were closer than the priests. And then one priest got to go into the Holy of Holies. It was a, a sort of gradient. What Paul is saying is, God has graced marriage with the ability to make one holy before the Lord. So that you are moving that person by the very fact that you're married to them, closer to the center of the temple. Thus, the children are likewise holy. Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't mean that children are set aside and in the covenant any more than he means that your unbelieving spouse is somehow in the covenant. What he means is simply that you get to spend a lot of time with them and you get to spend a lot of effort with them. You're allowed an intimacy with these unbelievers. Table fellowship, time, care, and concern, and much more than, than I think Paul would normally grant Christians to have for non-Christians. Many times, Paul is clear that our attention as believers should be paid both to the outside world, but especially to the people in the church. So in Galatians 6.10, he says, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone— and especially to those who are the household of faith. So there's this emphasis on your time and your energy being given over to people who are believers in the Lord, your brothers and sisters in the Lord. When Paul says that these people are holy, he means they are acceptable to spend a good deal of time on. 
Marriage and blood matter to the Lord. And therefore, taking time, loving them, praying for them, being concerned about them, having table fellowship with them, all of these are good things. They are holy before the Lord. In the end, Paul basically comes to the conclusion that sex within marriage is fine. It's not a bunch of ringing endorsements. Paul's not going head over heels about the goodness of sex. He isn't proclaiming that within, within the married life, it's such a great gift from God. He, he's simply not doing that. He is rather factual in what he happens to be saying here. Part of this is because Paul rarely highlights a gift without trying to highlight the giver of the gift. That's part of it. The other part is simply this. Paul's overriding emphasis in this chapter is not on married folks, although that's where it starts, but it's on single folks, and he has a lot to say about it. So let's turn then to the single and talk about issues for the single person. And here, of all places, is where we have a huge deal of divergence from what you typically hear, not only from conservative people in the world, but also many Christian leaders and churches have preached for decades. Paul, several times in this passage, littered throughout this passage, mentions his preference for people to stay single. Verses 7 and 8, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift, of one, one of one kind and one of another, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. In verse 26, Paul says, I think that in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Whether married, then married. Single, stay single. In verse 38, So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do better. And while he doesn't go through and explicitly state it, the majority of the end of the chapter is given over to reasons why Paul would have people stay unmarried. He unequivocally says it's good for them. Paul continues to press into this. He says in verse 35, it's to your benefit. Again, in verse 38, he says staying unmarried is better. In verse 40, he tells widows, you'll be happier. By the way, notice how much that goes against the strain of Christian preaching when it comes to marriage. When we talk about marriage in Christian circles, we almost always talk about there are financial advantages to it, there are emotional advantages to it, you have somebody to live your life with to help you when you're down, and Paul's saying almost precisely the opposite. You'll be happier, you'll be better, it will be good for you to remain single. Even in verse 40 when Paul says that, he says very clearly, this, however, is just my judgment, which is why Paul's very clear earlier on to talk about his opinion versus the commandment of the Lord. Why is this Paul's opinion? It's Paul's opinion because this is quite clearly a gray area. It's not a command, but it's a matter of the conscience. It's clearly not a sin if you marry. He says that two times, verse 26 and then later in the 30s, he says that it is not a sin. If you marry, you do well. You do not sin. Go ahead and marry. It's perfectly fine. I'm not the one who determines what your actions ought to be in this area. I'm simply giving you my opinion. But secondly, because Paul isn't such a scold that he's going to pretend to tell you exactly how you're going to be. 
he makes it very clear. I think that it's better for you. I think that it's good for you. I think that you'll be happier. It very well could be that none of those things are going to be true in your case. So, Paul understands that this is just his judgment. But at the very least, Paul is spending the better part of an entire chapter and one of the only chapters we have in all of Scripture given over to marriage to talk about why now, in the present day, after the resurrection of our Lord from the dead and the nearness of the end of time, it is good for you to stay single. That is not nothing. It is something that we need to think about. For some of you, it's too late. I understand that. Be happy. I'm happy in my marriage. I probably wouldn't have accepted this when I was 18, 23 anyway, so, you know, take what you will from it. But nevertheless, it's something for you to consider, something for us to think about. Why does Paul think this? First, he quite clearly thinks that marriage will bring distress in this world. In verse 28, if you do marry, you have not sinned. It's very clear up, up front. You have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I will spare you that. He, he quite clearly thinks that marriage leads to troubles in the world. This world is filled with problems and difficulties already, and those difficulties are exasperated once you marry and once you bring other people into them. And not because marriage is just a bare-knuckle fight all the time. That's not what Paul's getting at. Paul actually means the opposite, I think. What he means is, there is distress in this life. And because you love your spouse, because you want what is best for them, when you see these difficulties not only fall upon you, which is horrible enough, but when you see it fall upon them, you've got a whole nother set of experiences that you will have distress from and have difficulties in. He knows that Christians ought to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, but there's something distinct about being unified to a person and watching them go through trouble. How many of you have seen your loved ones go through health problems, your loved ones go through times of difficulty? It is not the same as watching a friend go through it. It is not. The difficulties of this world are multiplied to people who marry. On top of that, you're just more free as an individual you might share in the pain and sorrows of others, but you do not feel them as acutely as you do when you are married. Singleness itself isn't the cure to this, but we ought to stop portraying marriage as though it doesn't come with its own problems and only being good. There are difficulties here as well. Marriage brings distress in this world. Secondly, Paul says marriage brings anxieties. Besides the physical problems that are present in the world, besides the, the bad times, Paul also mentions anxieties, which are distinct because they, they don't necessarily mean that anything's gone wrong, but you have to be anxious for them. You have to spend your time concerned about the goodness of the life that your spouse is living. Be worried about your husband and the quality of life that he has and, and how happy your wife happens to be. You're naturally going to be concerned about your spouse and your family. Now, all of this needs to be seen from the vantage of Paul's view of the world, and especially his understanding of the nearness of the Lord. He thinks in no uncertain terms that the nearness of the Lord is imminent. It is right around the corner. Now, let me be clear. Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago, and he is not wrong about it. Because Paul did not say, the Lord's coming on Tuesday. 
why are you marrying Sunday? He didn't say he's coming in a couple of years, so there's no reason to have kids. But he does mean that now that the Lord has been raised from the grave and ascended on high, now that he is calling in believers from all walks of, the life, of life, from all corners of the world, now that he is building his church, the return of the Lord can happen at any moment. That is the clear and constant portrayal of the second coming in Scripture. And what Paul is saying is, you ought to live every moment in, life, in light of the fact that that moment is imminent. It can happen at any time. This is what he's, he's talking about when he says these sort of weird things about, you know, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no goods, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world. He means you're basically just living your life in light of the fact that any moment the Lord might return. He says, in light of that, why would you marry? From Paul's perspective, this just doesn't make any sense. Devote yourself to the Lord, which is the last point he makes about being single or married, is that marriage removes focus from the Lord. My family takes my attention away from service to this church, and y'all are incredibly gracious about that right? I got to pick up my kids. I got to drop them off in places. Uh, sometimes we, we've got family things that we have to do. All of that, that, you are incredibly gracious. But let's be clear. My time is split between serving you all and serving my family, and not always in a good way. Sometimes I'm, I'm unhealthily involved in church stuff. Sometimes I'm unhealthily involved with my family. I'll, I'll be clear with you. A single man could serve all of you much better. He would be much more devoted to you, why churches don't take on single pastors is beyond me. Because those men are there. They don't have families to devote themselves to. They have you to devote themselves to. And that's Paul's point. Not just in pastors, but in everyone. If you're single, you don't have any of those distractions. And you can unmitigatedly devote yourself to the Lord. Paul's clear marriage isn't a sin, marriage is fine. But given the strength of Paul's words throughout this chapter, it is amazing how little all of this is said in the vast majority of the churches. So what can we do about it? First, quite simply, stop pressing single Christians to marry. Stop. Don't pester them. Don't bother them about it. But rather encourage them. If they have the gift of singleness... Why are we encouraging people to give away a gift of the Spirit? If they know how to control themselves, we ought to encourage that. It's better for them, Paul says. It's good for them, Paul says. They would be happier, Paul says, to exercise the gift that God has given to them. And if God has given them a, spirit, a gift by the Spirit, who do you think you are to encourage them not to do what the Spirit has called them to do? And yet pastors get up in front of people and do it all the time. Don't press single Christians to marry. Secondly, don't act like marriage is the sin qua non of mature Christian living. It is not the definition of what it means to be a mature Christian, as though somehow you're lacking something by not being married. You lack nothing. You lack nothing. You have Jesus. You lack nothing. We're not incomplete in this world. This you complete me is a Hollywood fantasy. Jesus has completed you. 
You don't need another person to make you whole because they can't do it. And you're putting completely and wholly unrealistic expectations on anyone who you think can do that. The Lord Jesus is all you need. Be devoted to him. Don't act like marriage is the picture of a mature Christian life. Third, for parents, don't be selfish. I've heard Christian parents talk about their kids who wanted to be missionaries in difficult, faraway places, and they hate the idea. And they're good Christian people who happen to really, really love their kids, and they want their kids to stay near them. And they hear that their son or their daughter wants to go and be a missionary almost always in the dangerous places, right? Like, if you're serious about it, you're not like, I would like to be a missionary in Paris. Like, we need missionaries in Paris, too, which might help sign up some missionaries, but we, we need them a lot more in, in Africa and in China, and those are dangerous and dark places to go at times. And parents freak when they feel like their kids are going to leave them, especially if they've got grandkids and they're going to take them away. This is much the same. As much as we would stand up in front of people and say, you shouldn't ever do that. If God has called your child to be a missionary, get them on the mission field. Put them there. Support them in that. This is much the same. Listen, we had Christmas was wonderful. Christmas is always wonderful. I love Christmas Day. We had my in-laws over, and they came into my house, and they sat there. We have five children, two little boys. They watched them open the gifts. My youngest son got more Hot Wheels than anyone should possibly. He has more Hot Wheels than Jay Leno has normal cars. Our living room for the past week has been an Eastern European minefield. It is Hot Wheels everywhere, pokey things everywhere. He rips off pieces from the Hot Wheels and just leaves them around. Like, it's, it's a disaster area. My in-laws sat there, smiling the whole time, watching all the joyous present unwrapping, watched the laughter, watching the giggles, and then those people just left. They just left. I'm sitting there, like, bleeding from my eyes, looking at the chaos around me, happy, really sad, all at the same time, like, it's a disaster. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm glad you're happy. So they get all of that pleasure and none of that responsibility. Brothers and sisters, sign me up for that. Like, I am as excited as anyone else to have grandkids. I, I want that. <laughs> but I can't be selfish in that. Like, you, you can't want that so much that you're stepping on the gift that God has given your child. Your child is single. There's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing messed up about them. There's nothing incomplete about them. And your incompleteness, if you feel like you're incomplete, not being a grandparent with children from that child, brothers and sisters, that's your problem. It's not theirs. Don't be selfish. Lastly, we should strive very, very hard to give single Christians hospitality. We, we went through a pandemic. We, we know how difficult isolation is. And a lot of you were isolated with your families. Some of you, that made it better. Some of you probably made it a little worse. But nevertheless, you were isolated with your families. Single people have a way in America, in the West today, of being isolated a lot. 
Singleness in the world is accepted, even preferable. Singleness in Christianity is not. Not only do they have the hardships of single people in the world, but they have the hardship of being somewhat ostracized in the church. This wasn't the way it was in the New Testament. I I have to think that given the hospitality that is shown by believers for other believers all the way through the New Testament, that they were just welcome. They, they had interactions. They were always in one another's houses and business. I think that it would have never been a lonely. Paul doesn't mention anything about loneliness here. He, he seems to think that they would have had plenty of interactions, of relationships, of deep and abiding relationships with other people. It's incumbent upon us that we be the type of people that make single people feel hospitable within the walls of our church. We have to do all that we can to make sure that those who are single are loved, shown hospitality and care, and that because they're single doesn't mean they're not part of our families. But they are part of our families because they've been bought by the blood of Christ. In the end, Paul argues in the very middle section of this that we are to live the life that God has called us to. Paul says, the assignment that you have is the one that you have when God called you. It's pretty basic when it comes to marriage. How were you when you were called? He says, gives other examples. He says, this is the the way I've, I've talked about this in all of my churches. So if you're circumcised, you're circumcised. No problem. If you're uncircumcised, you're uncircumcised. He has this weird thing, by the way, we can't even talk about really, about slavery. And for people who want to uphold slavery, it's like they just, they don't know how to read. Paul says, we're your slave. It's not a big deal. But my goodness, if you can get out of it, get out of it. That's not the talk of a man who thinks that slavery is awesome. That's the talk of a man who says, slavery is bad. You should get out of it if you can. At any rate, whatever the condition you were when you were called, stay there. There is one exception to that when it comes to marriage. And that is simply that flow chart at the very beginning. Can you control yourself? If you can, then you have been given a gift. Run with that gift. If you cannot, marry and enjoy the fruits of marriage. But don't feel pressed into marrying. Don't feel pressed into the difficulties of marriage if you can avoid it. Remain as you are. Paul desires one thing out of people here. It's hidden, it's behind He's going to turn in chapter 8 to talk more about it. The issue is this. What Paul wants out of everyone is for them to be completely unhindered and unweighed down by anything that would keep them from devotion to the Lord. And whether we like it or not, Paul sees marriage as a hindrance to devotion to the Lord. I, I just don't know how else to put it. It's an acceptable one. It's acceptable. It's fine. And I would say, I'm not trying, lest anyone leave thinking, my goodness, he was dour. I wonder if everything's okay. Everything's fine. Love my wife. 95% sure she loves me. So all of that's good. We're happy. Marriage is great. We've got a lot of good things to say about marriage. And I'm not trying to be dour, but I do want to shift a little bit to, to rethinking the goodness of marriage and the rightness of marriage for all people. Serve the Lord. If you have taken on that responsibility already, that's fine. You have more responsibilities to serve the Lord and your family. If you haven't, serve the Lord with all you've got. 
Jesus Christ has died. He has purchased you. He has made you his own. Serve him with every ounce of energy that you have and remove anything from your life that would hinder you from doing that. This is the attitude that Paul has. And we should say, along with Paul, that we too think that he has the Spirit. Let us pray. Father, let us be grateful for every gift the Spirit may provide to us. If that gift is singleness, may we not only encourage those with that gift, but not train them to spurn or to mourn it, but to use that gift for your glory. Help us to be a full and vibrant community, loving one another as family. Bind us together through the Spirit, by our faith in Jesus, for the glory of our one true Father above. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you would stand and sing with us our song of response, All Glory Be to Christ.